So again, let yourself sit and listen at ease. Um, The idea isn't so much to remember the specifics of what we talk about as much as to let that which is wise in yourself be touched or awaken uh, in your own heart. Starting last week and for part of this summer, I've decided to return to a theme that I've done twice before in the last six or eight years at Spirit Rock, uh, which is the theme of the innate perfections of the heart, called the paramitas in Buddhist training, um, and the discovery, if you will, of our own Buddha nature or true nature, the qualities of the awakened heart that are there in every one of us as human beings that can be touched reminded, fulfilled. Um, And last week I started with the teaching of the first of these paramitas of the the generous heart. I think of the line from uh, the poem by Rumi where he says, walking out of the treasury building I feel generous. Anyone still sober in this weather must be really in trouble, you know. There's a sense of a kind of innate generosity that we can touch. This week, the second of these qualities of one's own true nature, or Buddha nature, is called the perfection of integrity or virtue. Um, Last week when I spoke of these qualities, I told the story of the Buddha Siddhartha being born a hundred thousand mahakalpas before his incarnation as the Buddha um, and taking the vow to become perfected um, in front of one of the previous Buddhas, Dipankara, and how long it took for him to do this, a mahakalpa being the amount of time it takes to wear down a huge mountain when a silk scarf is drawn across it every hundred years by a bird. Um, Another image that's used of the same cultivation of or, or development of the perfections of the heart is if you imagine a canyon much larger than the Grand Canyon, um, uh, several miles wide and several miles deep, as vast a canyon as you can imagine. And every hundred years, someone comes along and throws a mustard seed, which is about the size of a, you know, a black peppercorn, into the canyon. When that canyon fills up, that's one mahakalpa of time. So it's a long time to practice, which in some ways is rather discouraging when you think about it. I mean, we have enough trouble just with weeks and months, not to speak of kalpas and mahakalpas. Um, But in the deepest sense, what this speaks of is that which is eternal, timeless, universal, not to be found in the Palm Pilot world and the date book world, but something that is so true that from the beginning of the universe and to the existence of another universe, it will also be true. And when we listen for that which is eternally true and universal, 
we touch as well our place in this great unfolding of the universe. This Monday night, next Monday night, kind of both fall around the summer solstice. So we're getting, in a few days anyway, to this longest Sunday of the year, and the shortest night. And it's kind of amazing when we take time to go and look um, at the cycles and seasons and spinning of the earth and the movement of the planet around the sun. Remember last week there was that solar eclipse on, on Monday night when we came in. Um, and if you've ever seen a, a, a full solar eclipse, there's this amazing passage of the moon in front of the sun and then this un, uh, unbelievable kind of darkness. And you can see, if you're out like on a ship or something, you actually see the shadow of the moon racing toward you. Um, and you get a sense from that, or at other times as you look into the night sky, that we really are riding on the surface of this amazing globe through dark space, you know, around not just our own star, but in the great Ferris wheel of the arm of the Milky Way that rotates every hundred millions, every hundred million kalpas or something like that, every hundred million years as Buddhas appear and disappear. The question becomes then, how do we find a sense of harmony within these changing worlds? Because there will be sunlight to its penultimate in a few days, and then what does it do? It begins to shift and we move back toward the winter solstice eventually, and then it starts again to get light. There is a kind of harmony of the seasons and of the planets and the galaxies themselves that we need to find to live wisely as human beings. And the teachings of the Dharma, which is a Sanskrit word that means the truth, the way things are, the universal laws, is the expression, as best as it can be done in words from the Buddha's teachings, of this same universal harmony. Now, in modern times, there is um, a great value on cultural relativity and the relativity of values and rules. Right and wrong is simply determined by what some group of people decide it to be. But if we believe that in the most fundamental way, we are like a boat without a rudder, because there are a lot of different views and opinions as many as there are people, or certainly as many as there are groups of people, um, and we can get lost in some pretty rocky waters. There's a psychological experiment that's done um, when you're training as a psychologist. Often in the university, it's in Psych 101 or one of the early classes, in which they take three buckets of water and bring them up to the front of the class, and one bucket on one side is filled with quite hot water, just about as hot as you can stand to put your hand in. The bucket on the opposite side is filled with ice water, with cubes of ice and ice water in it, and the one in the middle is room temperature water. And the unsuspecting, they're always only half-suspecting psychology student is called up to the front <laughs> so everyone can watch. 
and asked to put their hands into the very hot water and the very cold water and hold them there for as long as they can, at least for a minute, which is really demanding because it's so cold and it's so hot. And finally, after half a minute or a minute is up, they're instructed to pull their hands out and then place them into the middle bucket of room temperature water. And that's the moment that this sort of strange expression appears on the psychology student's face that so pleases the professor, because their two hands are in the same bucket of water, and yet to one hand the water feels really hot, and to the other hand the same water, touching that same hand, feels really cold. And that you begin to know in that moment the relativity of perception. The teachings of the Dharma, especially this second quality of our own true nature or Buddha nature, speak of a universal integrity or virtue that is independent of culture or time or perhaps even of this particular planet in its incarnation. I was going to read you a story, but I won't tonight. I'll save it for another night from this wonderful book, The Boy Lama, of them finding young Lama Yeshe, who I knew when he was in his last incarnation, and all the little stories they have about bringing this young boy around to see places or meet people that he had previously been the great grand Lama in, and how he acted when he came into his old temples and kind of went and looked for the things that he had known and went up to people and addressed them in ways, you know, as a two or three or five-year-old child that nobody could ever have imagined. And it begins to make you wonder, at least, well, what is this human life? How do we get in this body? How'd you get in here? (laughs) Really? And how many times before might you have done this? And how do you live in it wisely? So there is instead of the kind of expedient relative way of looking at things, there is also a universal way of looking at our human predicament, our human life, um, from the point of view of virtue. And we're all faced with it regularly, whether it's okay to cheat a little bit on our taxes, or whether it's okay to drive above the speed limit a bunch, as I often do, you know, Or what about the redwood decking we decided to put on our our house? And what is the relationship of that to the old growth redwood forest or whatever we care about? Or how about affairs that we have that we're quiet about so we don't tell anyone, especially our partner, you know? Or what about um, companies that we invest in or work for that sell weapons? Um, And then, of course, it said, well, but if the U.S. doesn't sell the weapons, then the other countries that market weapons will take our market, right? What about that? Or what about insider trading? Well, everybody does it, so it's okay. Um, All the kind of expedient relative ways, and I'm not saying even in this what we should do. There's a wonderful story of a... um, hospital, um, a uh, psychiatric hospital in Illinois that was, um, uh, that uh, was built, that's next to a toll road. It was built, a toll road was built near it. 
Um, and since this is a long toll road and the, the exit to this hospital is a small exit, they don't have a toll taker when you leave the toll road. They simply have a, uh, one of those baskets that you throw money in, one of those mechanized kind of toll places. Um, and so if you don't throw money, you can kind of get through there without doing so. And one of the bright psychologists on the staff of the hospital decided to do a study. So he set up a secret video camera there. And because most of the people going off that toll exit went to the hospital, a lot of them worked there. And he did a study to see who paid their tolls and who didn't among the staff. But the, that wasn't the interesting part, although that's amusing, I understand. What was interesting is he then correlated it with the statistics that he collected about um, the success rate, the, the treatment success rate of the psychologists, psychiatrists, and other therapists in the hospital um, with their patients. And what he discovered in the study that he published is that the docs who paid the tolls their patients got better statistically in a much more statistically significant fashion. Isn't that interesting? So it's just for you to reflect on. You can do what you like with this, right? What would be universal virtue or integrity, justice, ethics, morality? These are different words we use for it. Um, what is said of true virtue is that it is like a crown. I think of that as like the crown chakra. It's the adornment of queens and kings who harm none but serve <clears throat> that <clears throat> which is good and true and just. They are the ones who wear the crown of beauty of their own Buddha nature or true nature. And there are all these wonderful tales from the past lives of the Buddha different ways in which he acted with incredible integrity in difficult situations. Um, but the tale I want to tell tonight is not that. It comes from an uh, acquaintance, a friend, who, who I respect very much, a woman named Jane Middleton Maas, who is both an expert in the fields of addiction and psychology and in working with communities. And she is um, Native American, half, anyway. And in learning to work in the field of addictions in community, she got involved for a period of time with the Ojibwe and the Ashinaabe Indians in Canada and in the northern central part of the U.S. And one of the tragic, one of the truly tragic things that happened among a long string of them to the Indians in America and to the Ashinaabe in particular for this story is that um, for one or two generations the children of the villages were taken away from their parents and sent from the reservation to government boarding schools um, by force by the government. The Canadians did it and so did, the, so did we in America. <clears throat> in fact it was not until 1978 under President Carter that a law was passed that allowed Native Americans to practice their own religious practices. This is true. Until 1978, it was illegal for the Native peoples of this land to practice their own religious practices. 
So what happened to the communities when their children were forcibly taken to schools where they weren't allowed to learn the native language and where they were indoctrinated into a white culture? Um, what was left of communities that were already torn apart by the disappearance of their land and culture in many ways um, was destroyed by this action from the government. And so Jane decided in her work to go back to these communities and to make this a part of the healing work um, that she was committed to. And in one large community, the uh, Ashanabi, um, she went and spent a number of months working with the elders and the middle-aged people and the youth in the community um, to try to find out what would be healing. And then she learned of a ritual of welcoming uh, that the tribe had practiced for a thousand years, but that was lost or not practiced in the last generations from the elders, and so decided to do this ritual with the entire community. And after working with the community, got a whole group of people together, and in this ritual, at one point, made three sets of circles. The inside were the young people who had been taken from the community to the schools, uh, to the government schools, um, and traumatized in all kinds of ways, not allowed to speak their language, beaten if they did, to speak their own native language, not allowed to do their religious practices, all kinds of trauma. In the ring around them were the parents whose children were taken. And in the ring beyond them were the elders of the community. And in this welcoming ritual, part of what was necessary is that the new people in the community, the children who are new or those who enter the community speak first, and then the others speak to welcome them. But it, as was needed, she simply asked that they tell their story. So in the center, the young children, now they were somewhat grown, 18, 20, 25, began to tell what it was like to be ripped away from their parents and family and sent to these government boarding schools and how terrible it was. And many tears were shed. And when they had finished, then there was some chanting, offerings made, then the parents told their stories of what it was like to have their children taken away. And it was actually then that most of them started drinking, they said. And this is why we are the way that we are. This is what made us give up our work, give up our weaving, give up the things that we care about. When our children were taken away, we had no more heart left. And they told the stories that they needed to tell so their children could understand what happened to the parents. And when the parents were finished, then the elders spoke, and they told the old stories of the tribe, and what had been gained and what had been lost, and how they had come to this terrible day when their children had been taken away. And when all the stories were done and many tears shed, the elders said, but this is not the way that we have traditionally welcomed our youth into our community. 
The welcome requires that we offer to you something, something that is truly precious to us. And so after the young people had understood the shock of what happened to their parents and the loss in the community by their disappearance, one of the elders stood up and said, I offer, she said, for 50 years now I have not made baskets but my grandmother taught me, and I offer to teach you how to make the baskets of our people. And another old man stood up and said, and what I offer you after hearing the stories today is that I will never drink again. You will never see me with a drink after 40 years of drinking. And another person stood up, an old woman, and said, I have hid myself in my house for so long after we've lost so much. But I want to say to all of you young people, my door is open and it will never be closed to you. That is my gift to you. And another one stood up and said, and I will no longer sell the artifacts of our people. I will keep them. I will not sell the land of our people. And by the end of the circle, the young people were, were welcomed back into a community that had begun to knit itself back together with integrity. In some way, this story points to the enormous power of virtue, of telling the truth, of not harming another being, of what it means to have a community that lives in an honorable way with one another, to stand by your character no matter what. My teacher Ajahn Chah in the Forest Monastery loved to talk about virtue. It was his favorite topic. There was such joy when you talk about living with integrity, the peace of integrity, the sanity of living with a virtuous heart. All spiritual life rests upon it. I mean, it's very simple, as I've said before. It's really hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It just doesn't work. And without integrity, without the truth and the honesty and the care, it is like getting in a boat and rowing somewhere while the line is still tied to the dock. You can do as many spiritual practices as you want. You will not get anywhere without the fundamental practice of virtue. There are different levels of virtue which I will speak about, each one of integrity. But what's important to understand is that virtue in its most fundamental way is an invitation to awakening. All the states of insight and understanding must rest on our not harming of other beings. Otherwise, they're worthless. They're useless. So the first quality, the first dimension of living with a heart of integrity or virtue is simply limiting harm. And this is what it means to enter the human realm. It's said that you have a human body, but that you're not actually a human being. 
until you stop killing and stealing and harming other beings. If you, if you haven't yet, then you have a human form, but inside is a hungry ghost or a, or a tortured beast. So the first prin- principle of the awakening of our own Buddha nature, or this virtuous heart, as they say in medicine, is first do no harm. Or Voltaire put it this way, the art of medicine consists mostly of amusing the patient while nature heals the disease. (laughs) First, do no harm. And in this dimension of our own virtue, we undertake to refrain from actions that harm other beings. Thank you. Ruth Dennison, who's one of our elders in this community, teaches here. Um, when she was leading a retreat at one time, said during her lunch break she went out to the the parking lot, she was just taking a walk, and the sheriff's car was parked there. Um, Because the sheriff comes in, it's a quiet place actually, where he can have a little bit of his lunch hour without a a lot of disturbance, which is fine. And she walked up to his car, knocked on the window, and he rolled it down. And she introduced herself. She said he was, you know, we were, she was really happy that he was here. He's welcome to be here anytime. And she said, you know, we help you here. We actually, we teach people <laughs> to not steal and kill. Said, we're really on your side. <laughs> so the traditional training of the heart is done by the undertaking taking of five basic trainings of non-harming, which are called sometimes the precepts. The first is to not kill, not hurt other living beings, even little ones. Remember that poem that I like to read um, from Lloyd Reynolds, a bug crawls across the paper, leave him be, we need all the readers we can get. Even the little ones don't want to be harmed. You'll notice that, you know, they'd rather get out of, shooed out of the way. Or the cartoon from the New Yorker one year in hunting season, the, you know, deer on the hillside and the hunters with their guns, one deer says to the other, why don't they thin their own goddamn herds, you know? Somebody asked the Dalai Lama what he thought about the morality of shooting a horse that had broken its leg. And he he thought about it. He's such a thoughtful person. And he said, I I couldn't do it. He said, would you shoot a child who had broken their leg? That was his answer. He said, "I, I can't distinguish one being from another. So the first traditional training is to avoid harming living beings, not to kill in any way that we're able to do. The second traditional training, and it makes your heart feel good to not harm beings, it's fantastic. The second is on no account to steal, not to take things that don't belong to us. When you're a monk, it's a very um, powerful training because it's said that if you take something worth more than a nickel that doesn't belong to you, you are no longer a monk, and you can never be a monk again in your life. That's how careful you have to be to not take something that doesn't belong to you. 
So it's simply part of the virtue of a monk to be really careful not to take anything that's not given or doesn't belong to them. And it makes your life very simple and very clear and very, very clean. And on the other hand, you know what it's like to live in a place where people steal a lot. What it does to one another and the barriers and the, the, the uh, arms race of, you know, making sure that our things are safe and the billions of dollars we spend in this culture on safety, you know, and protection devices. And, and, and when we get in a culture not like our own, but where at certain times it's broken down more and people steal a lot how unsafe one feels in one's heart to not kill, to not steal, not because these are bad or sinful or evil, but because they destroy the beauty and integrity of our own heart. They're things that we can learn from. It's great to hear the kids running out there in the evening. It's beautiful. Another of the training precepts traditionally is not to speak falsely, not to lie, slander, gossip, not to undermine others with our words. Gossip, somebody says, and there, you know, there are different uses of it, but um, Joseph Goldstein, a colleague and friend, teacher, said he really wanted to practice with this, to take it seriously. So at one point in his training, he undertook the practice of not speaking about someone that he knew when they weren't present. He said, and to my astonishment, 90% of my speech was eliminated. (laughs) So it, it, the traditional teaching is to not speak things that are harmful, that are undermining, um, that are untrue. Then there's the refraining from causing harm through the misuse of sexuality, the kind of pain um, that we know we can cause to another being. Um, and always when I teach this, I ask, how many people in the room have made idiots of yourselves in sexual relations? Don't bother to raise your hand. We already know the answer, right? There is probably not a person in this room who wouldn't raise their hand. It's such a powerful energy, and it can be associated on one hand with um, grasping and um, uh, with uh, um, harm to another and with uh, the misuse in all kinds of ways, in selfish ways. Or it can be associated with the most loving and intimate and beautiful capacity of human life. The precept is simply not to harm a second or third another person through the misuse of this human capacity. And then the last training is not to abuse alcohol or drugs, not to become intoxicated in a way that causes harm to others. 10 million drug addicts, 20 million alcoholics, the majority of auto fatalities, the majority of child abuse, the majority of home fires, um, the number of people whose families have been touched by the suffering of addiction. Again, if I ask you to raise your hand, your families or those that you love close to you, enormous potential for suffering when misused. 
These are the trainings for basic humanity. As Spencer Tracy put it, just know your lines and don't bump into the furniture, right? <laughs> this is the basic training as a human being to not kill or steal or lie or harm others through misuse of sexuality intoxicants. And yet they are so powerful. Imagine, if you will, if human beings on this earth kept one precept, one of these trainings, even half a training. Suppose it was okay to kill other beings, just not human beings, just not other people. Um, you wouldn't recognize the earth if we didn't kill one another. It would be so radically different. Or imagine if there wasn't stealing. Or imagine if on this earth people told the truth, that there wasn't lying. It's phenomenal. The earth is too small a star and we too brief visitors upon it for anything to matter more than the truth. We're here for such a short time and there is such power for any being who takes care, such power of awakening of the heart. So the first dimension of virtue is the refraining, to do no harm to others. The second level is the cultivating or expression of our natural compassion. So even if you untie the rowboat, you know, and you get in it, and you might call out, okay, come hither, other shore, come to me, the other side, you can't do it. You still have to row to the other shore, even after you've untied it. The idea is not just to refrain from harming, but to see that we are all in the same boat. There is an inner empowerment to care for our brothers and sisters and all creatures, how we drive, how we use water. I was reading that the average American uses a million gallons of water a year per person how we respond to the homeless on our streets, to the racism in our communities, to the injustice in our criminal system, to the fact that we live in a country that makes war on a lot of other countries and sells a lot of arms and supports it. What do we do about all of this? We know that there is another truth. Stress and loneliness may have as much to do with healing as the latest drugs and expensive procedures. Human beings aren't intricate mechanisms whose fuel injection system can be dispassionately adjusted by medical mechanics and that is it. The need for contact, communication, and compassion has been programmed into the functioning of our cells, in our immune system, in the walls of our coronary arteries, in our very will to live. The driving force in nature on this kind of planet with this sort of biosphere is cooperation. The most inventive and novel of all schemes in nature and perhaps the most significant in determining the great landmarks in evolution is symbiosis, which is simply cooperative behavior carried to an extreme. We are interwoven with one another. So then what does it mean not to kill 
in this ma manner, it means really the cultivation of a reverence for life, of sensing our generation as a part of the, the web of life, the fabric of life, the single garment of destiny that Martin Luther King talked about, and realizing that it's not just a question of refraining from killing, but rather a treasuring of life and supporting it with our own. What is man without the beast, asked Chief Seattle. If all the beasts were gone, men would surely die from great loneliness of spirit, for whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. And in this way, the understanding of virtue is that care for those who are hungry far or near, for those who are in difficulty far or near, because they are your mother and your father and your brother and your sister. And it's the truth. We are that connected. And to not steal when that is translated into the noble heart, into the Buddha nature that lies within us, becomes not just refraining from stealing, but a respect for the things of the earth, for justice, for care, for not being piggy with the things that we have. One famous Zen master tells, or the story is told, how in his Zen temple, where they were very poor, the villagers would come and offer vegetables to be made into the meals for the week. And one day a, a monk was chopping up the vegetables out on, behind the kitchen, and there was a little stream that went by and cut off the tops of the carrots, carrots and radishes. And then thinking that they were not necessary, tossed them into the little stream that ran behind. And the den master came out at that moment and said, Oh my God, you tossed away the top of the carrot and the radish and jumped in the stream and went running after it until he got them and brought them back for the soup. A woman that I know, Helena Norberg-Hodge, has been working on the Ladakh project for 25 years now. Ladakh is an area of northern India filled with Tibetan Buddhists, very beautiful country. And when she first went there to help um, them understand how they might modernize and retain some of their culture, and recorded and spoke with the people in the community, they said, we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, and we are so prosperous and rich because we have our temples, and we have our fields of barley, and we have our ceremonies, and our children and families and schools are all woven together in our villages. And there was a tremendous sense, as can be in a healthy indigenous culture, of well-being across the um, whole of humanity there. Fifteen years later, as she recorded in a movie that she made about this, after videos, televisions, the influence of modernization had really spread into Ladakh. She interviewed the same generation of teenagers and young adults, and they were moaning how poor they were, you know, that they didn't have 
anything of value in their culture because they didn't have wristwatches and they had very few televisions and they didn't have SUVs or whatever the equivalent is, you know, jeeps to drive around the dock. And the very same place and very same culture was seen from a different point of view. Men and women are free to choose anything in economic societies except to opt out. The ultimate reason is to prefer to neither produce nor consume wealth. Cultures that do not believe in economics and the sale of goods and people must be developed out of existence. Roads, schools, and hospitals are the preferred weapons of destruction. This is not to say that's completely true, because there are places that really need hospitals. But it's a way of looking at what is our relationship to this world. Is it as colonists? Or is it that we can live in a way that really cares for the things of this world with that level of compassion and integrity? Then to not lie means also to speak up for that which is true. Because to, to lie itself is to be frightened and to live from that small place of the heart. The people you have to lie to own you. The things you have to lie about own you. When your children see you own, they are not your children anymore. They are the children of what owns you. If money owns you, they are the children of money. If your need for pretense and illusion owns you, they are the children of pretense and illusion. If your fear of loneliness owns you, they are the children of loneliness. If your fear of the truth owns you, they are children who fear the truth. It's from Michael Ventura. To not lie transforms into a willingness to speak the truth no matter what. And to speak the truth doesn't mean a kind of harsh truth, a kind of, um, I'm going to tell you what I think about things truth. That can be as harmful as anything else. But it's the willingness to say what is true and what needs to be said. From the Buddha, he says, when one is to speak wisely, they must think thus, in due season will I speak, and not out of season. In truthfulness will I speak, not in falsehood. Gently will I speak, not harshly. To their benefit will I speak, not to their loss. And with kind intent will I speak, not in anger. There is a lot that we need to say and speak up about. And there are things that we need to refuse to be silent about. For evil to succeed, says Martin Luther King, all it needs is good people to remain silent. Or William Faulkner, who writes, some things you must always be unable to bear, some things you must never stop refusing to bear, injustice, outrage, dishonor, shame, no matter how young you are or how old you are, not for 
fame and not for cash, your picture in the paper or money in the bank, just refuse to bear them. And this is the virtuous heart that speaks what is true no matter what. To not cause harm through sexuality, to me, really speaks of the power of Eros, this incredible force. It got you here, folks. It's what brought you into life. It's an amazing power. And to associate this mysterious force with respect or care or love or intimacy or just that sense of mystery that it is. To respect the eros of the world and to not imbue intoxicants becomes transformed into seeking that which awakens us walking in the mountains, periods of silence, listening to great music, spending time in meditation, to allow that virtue of the heart that comes out of stillness. Because we're all so busy. And the stillness doesn't mean just running away to some quiet place for a time, but going away to remember that we exist in a sea of stillness within which these words and your thoughts and feelings and everything arises and passes away. To do that which furthers our awakening rather than putting ourselves to sleep with whether it's intoxicants or the repetition of our life. Instead, to take our life and make it a practice of awakening. Zhuang Su writes, A drunken man who falls out of a cart, though he may suffer, does not die. His bones are the same as other people's, but he meets his accident in a different way. His spirit is a condition in a condition of security. He is not conscious of riding in the cart, neither is he conscious of falling out of it. Ideas of life, death, fear, and the like cannot penetrate his breast, and so he does not suffer from contact with objective existence. If such security is to be got from wine, how much more is it to be found resting in the Tao? Look for that security. So this level of virtue knows that life is complicated, <clears throat> but the intention of the heart is to not harm, but rather to care with compassion for all that we meet, like a parent, auntie, uncle, brother, sister, as we meet beings, whoever they are, our beloved children. And then the last level, adisila, is the discovery of virtue as our own essence, the inherent awakened heart. When the fear of death and insecurity and self-interest, what we would call the small sense of self, drops away, and it does for all of us in moments, then there is this king or queen in us that wants to speak what is true, that wants to act from the greatest place of nobility of our own true nature. Desmond Tutu said of his buddy, his friend, Nelson Mandela, 
speaking of a man who was not broken after 27 years of imprisonment. Those 27 years and all the suffering they entailed were the fires of the furnace that tempered his heart, that removed the dross. Perhaps without that suffering, he would have been less able to be as compassionate and magnanimous and dignified as he turned out to be. And that suffering on behalf of others gave him an authority and credibility that can be provided by nothing else in quite the same way. Every act offers us the chance to reclaim that inner authority. Every act is a chance to bestow virtue and justice in what we say, in how we move, in what we do. And when our acts come from the sense of connectedness with who we really are, with our wholeness, with that which is undying in us, then all things come right. It doesn't mean we won't suffer, as Nelson Mandela suffered terribly, but those of you who saw him when he came out of prison or saw him when he came to the Bay Area and spoke in Oakland in the Coliseum saw a person that was so ennobled, even by his trials, that it reminded us that we too, as human beings, have that potential within us. The each of us, like Gandhi, has an inexhaustible store of purity and a tremendous capacity to offer our blessings. The scent of sandalwood, of rose bay and jasmine travels only as far as the wind, says the Buddha. But the scent of virtue rises even to the gods. To speak truth, even in the face of power, to care for beings no matter what, to rest in our own integrity. What a blessing. You will be tested over and over again. You will be tested in your most intimate relationships, in your community, and in your role as a citizen of the world. The idea is not to judge yourself, but to discover over and over that king or queen within you. There are no prerequisites for compassion. It is possible to be kind, though bad things are happening elsewhere. We must simply find ways to plant the seeds we wish to grow on this earth. We must, as Gandhi says, become the change we would create in this world. Think about your life for a moment, just reflect. And reflect on the places and times where your virtue really shines and what that feels like. And then let yourself reflect again for a moment on what virtues asked for more consciousness and more respect. 
O nobly born, do not forget who you really are. As Robert Johnson, the Jungian analyst, writes, Curiously, people resist the noble aspects of their nature more strenuously than they hide the dark side. To draw the skeletons out of the closet is relatively easy, but to own the gold in our shadow is terrifying. It is more disrupting to find out you have a profound nobility of character than it is to find out you are a bum. So let us just sit for a moment, contemplate that. And then we'll end with a chant. like to invite you to do, but only for those who wish, is to chant with me in Pali, which is an ancient Buddhist language like Sanskrit, the five training precepts which are chanted. Every time people would go into a Buddhist monastery, you take them as a practice. You take them each time because inevitably you won't have fulfilled them so well in the intervening time, so you get to start all over again. The idea isn't so much, again, that it's uh, good and evil and sinful and things like that, but that these are the trainings of the heart to remember who we really are. So I'll recite them, their meanings, and, and uh, recite them in Pali. We'll kind of do it back and forth so that those who wish to undertake them as trainings of the heart can do so. And we'll do them as well as an offering to Bernie Zilbergeld, who died this past week, and to all who are in situations of danger, to all who are sick, to all on this earth who are subject to injustice, so that we might offer the virtue and the compassion of our heart as a gift to bring this world to peace and to care for one another. the training precept of refraining from killing. Please repeat after me. Panatipata Panatipata 
Veda Mani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the compassionate practice of refraining from killing or harming living beings, is what you just said. Then the second precept, refraining from stealing. Adina dana. Adina Veratmani. Sikapatam. Samadhyami. I undertake the training precept out of compassion to not steal or take that which does not belong to me. The third is uh, refraining from false or harmful speech. Musawada Vedatmani Sikapatam Samadhyami I undertake out of compassion to use the power of words to speak that which is true and useful. Fourth precept, to refrain from the causing of harm through misuse of sexuality. Kame Sumicha Jaraweratmani Sikapatam Samadhyami I undertake the training precept of refraining from causing harm to others through the misuse of sexuality. And the last, the training of the heart to not misuse in any way intoxicants, alcohol. Surame Raya Machabama Datanha Vedatmani Sikapatam Samadhyami. I undertake the compassionate training of refraining from the misuse in any way of alcohol or intoxicants so as not to harm myself or any other beings. Silena Sukatinyanti, Silena Poga Sambata, Silena Niputinyanti Tatsama, Silang Visota Ye. This undertaking of virtue is an awakening of the heart, brings happiness in this life, brings freedom and leads to liberation. May it be so for all who have spoken these words, and may it be an offering to all other beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.